Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Today, we have Jordan Lazowski, Editor-in-Chief of Sox on 35th. Jordan, so much appreciate the time that you're giving us today. I've been keeping an eye on Sox on 35th for a few years now. And lately, it's really been blowing up on the social medias. I'd love to get your take on where things stand and uh, how how you feel the operations going over at Sox and 35th. And I want to highlight Sox on 35th right now because of all of the work that you're putting out. No, I appreciate that. And honestly, I appreciate you having me on. It's great to talk some White Sox baseball with, you know, not just the usual Sox on 35th crew on a podcast. So it's fun to do something like this. But in terms of Sox on 35th and what we're doing, I mean, None of it's possible without Joe Binder. I mean, he is the unsung hero because he just has not had the ability to build up his own personal following because everything he does is off the socks on 35th account. He does such an awesome job with it. And, you know, starting off, I think it was back in either 2017 or 2018 I started. I think it was 2017. And it was myself, Joe Binder, Johnny Nani, and Brandon Anderson. And it's since grown... We're, we're continuing to grow. We're starting to find some new contributors who are coming on, some real smart dudes who just know a lot about the game of baseball and want to write. And at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it's fun to just be able to provide a place for White Sox fans who are like, hey, we want to write about the game. We want to write about our favorite team. Do we have an opportunity to do it with you guys? And I think that's the most fun part for me is, you know, not only just writing my own pieces or helping Joe with the page, but at the same time, just giving people opportunities to do what they love. I mean, that's all any of us can really ask for at this point, honestly. I mean, as we get up and going and, you know, we learn, we have our bumps in the road. It's guys like you guys and Sox Machine, those who have come before us, that we usually look to as our inspiration. Okay, when this happened, what did Future Sox do? How about Sox Machine? And you look at these different blogs and what everyone does, and you learn from that. And I think as a newer blog, I personally really enjoy the work we're doing i think joe does a great job brandon does a great job of graphics i think at the end of the day having a place to talk white Sox baseball that's all we really want to do doesn't matter who you're working for doesn't mean matter who you're writing for just being able to write about talk about the team that's all we can ask for it's awesome yeah i'm glad you mentioned joe binder there because uh it, it's clear that he puts a lot of his time and effort into making socks on 35th successful and i think we had this conversation too when we actually got a chance to meet up with each other uh, in Glendale watching some White Sox spring training baseball, it was March 8th because you were leaving as I entered in that week. And, uh, uh, you know, the two of us will likely never forget where we were when all of this started to go down because of where we were in our lives. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, no doubt. March 11th, uh, I'm in Arizona as spring training shuts down. And you just got done watching a full week you know, work for baseball. It's just so surreal. But we had this conversation about Joe Binder as well as some of the guys, because you guys are all just fresh out of college, if I'm not mistaken, and you guys are still um, taking the time to commit to this site as much as you have been. Yeah, so myself, I'm a year out of school. Uh, Joe Binder just graduated this May. Uh, Johnny's been out a little bit longer, not to call him old or anything, but he's been out a little bit longer than us. Um, and Brandon's still in college. Uh, it was, I think it was his freshman year last year. So, I mean, it's a very young crew in terms of what we're doing. And that's why it's so helpful to have, you know, such dedicated people at the top like Joe. Like I said, he's an unsung hero. Um, 
and then having everybody just throughout us just being so young, so inexperienced, but also just full of passion, full of writing talent, writing ability, and just intellect about the game. And, you know, it's awesome to be able to be a part of that. And it's awesome to be able to go on to cover games in Arizona when this was all something you could still go and cover games for on a day-to-day basis. Like, I mean, you're saying, like, you, you, you don't forget where you were when this all happened. Like, I mean, you were talking about it. I'm getting on a plane. I'm hearing about all this COVID stuff. It's like, oh, is anything really going to come of this? What is, what's going on? What's happening? And, you know, three days later, it's a completely different world. And it, it's scary how quickly things turn, but also... You know, just being able to have the platform we all still do throughout this time to bring baseball in some form, whether it's old replays or old articles or whatever you can do to make this time feel as normal as possible. Like, that's awesome to me. We're all fans at the end of the day, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. And and that's what I see a lot of um, out of Sox on 35th. So credit to you guys over there. Wanted to give you guys your, your a shout out that you deserve because of the quality content you're putting together. So let's get down to some White Sox conversation here, Jordan, because uh, your boy, Carson Fulmer, what happened? <laughs> I want to get your take on uh, on Carson's tenure here and why you found him so intriguing as a Sox prospect. You know, he is such a frustrating prospect for me. I'm very, I'm very analytical. So I look into all the new age analytics, the spin rates, you know, exit velocity, you're talking pitch or hitter, excuse me. Those types of things really intrigue me when you're looking at a guy. And Carson Fulmer, for me, was always someone who his underlying metrics, his spin rate, curve spin rate, fastball spin rate, spin efficiency even, it all pointed to a guy that had the pure stuff to be able to be a successful major leaguer. Now, obviously, just because you have good stuff doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. You got to be able to execute. You got to be able to go out and make your pitches. And at the end of the day, he was just never able to do that. And it's frustrating because, you know, you wonder, okay, was he rushed? There's an argument you could say he was rushed to the major leagues. There's an argument you can say, well, they changed his mechanics so much he never got comfortable. But at the same time, he was given three, four, five years to work through this, and nothing worked. And you almost wonder, at the end of the day, is it just better for him to be on a different team? Some fresh voices, some fresh opinions... Just see if he can recapture some of what we saw, some of what made us also excited when the Sox drafted him way back when. So it's, he, he's such an intriguing guy because of his pure stuff. You, you don't find many guys with that elite spin on both his fastball and his curveball. All of his pitches had the ability to be really dominant pitches. But if you can't locate at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good your stuff is. So he's still going to be one of my favorites. I'm going to be following him in Detroit. But man, is it disappointing to see him finally go, though. It's bittersweet in a way. Because you're disappointed to see the guy you loved so much kind of fizzle out with your team. But you know, there's always the opportunity that some new voices, some new faces really helps him out. Yeah, Jordan, I wasn't covering the draft yet back in 2015. I didn't, I didn't write for Future Sox at the time. But, you know, I'd always followed it. And when they took Fulmer, it was kind of like, okay, this is the next guy on the board. You know, I had I had known that he wasn't their, you know, their first choice, but there were some guys gone. And when I watched Carson Fulmer in college, 
Like he was nasty, like you said. Absolutely. But but it was a lot of like bad college guys like swinging and missing at breaking pitches that professional hitters were never gonna swing at. So I, I don't know. Like I kind of feel like maybe they should have never changed like him, you know, and got rid of like all the herky jerky in that delivery. But he also like wasn't throwing ninety seven anymore. So I I guess like that's my issue is that like you know the spin rate numbers are good like I agree with you there but if he's like throwing his fastball like ninety three ninety four mm-hmm. and he's not throwing strikes I I don't think it's gonna work anywhere personally yeah I mean the 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 drop in velocity is absolutely a big thing because that that was one of his perks coming out of college and absolutely you know when you look back at I mean even just from twenty fifteen to twenty twenty how much scouting changes how much would different scouts look at changes what do you read about in scouting reports even how much that changes even over such a short period of time you know you're alluding to it james it's like oh a lot of people liked him but at the same time maybe it was some of the guys he was facing that just because they weren't as good it made him look better he got away with pitches he normally wouldn't and that's an interesting look at it too it's almost like if you were to know what you knew now about scouting five years ago, would we still be saying Carson Fulmer was the right pick there? Not not even just saying the results over the past five years, but knowing what we know and how scouting has changed even just in the past five years, would you still make that pick? Would he even still be considered a consensus top 10 pick? Like that, That's really intriguing to me. Yeah, I don't I mean that's a it's a really bad draft class like 20, oh, 20, 20 like 2015 was brutal and he had detractors at the time. I mean, I think Keith Law didn't even like have him in his top 100, I don't think, because he said right away, you know, and you kind of know how Keith Law is. He was like, "Nope, reliever, not ranking him." You know, sure, and that absolutely. you know, and like that's not necessarily like the appropriate way to do it either, but that you know, that's just kind of 6 foot like that delivery he can't start like I'm not ranking him and that's kind of how he felt, but you know, we don't we don't have to do Carson Fulmer the whole time. You you alluded to the fact that you were uh, in Glendale for spring training. You you saw Luis Robert live, I assume. Oh, I did. Man, he's so, a big dude. <laughs> yeah. So you know, as me and Mike have been doing this over the past few months, and you know, Luis Robert probably comes up with pretty close to every every guest we've had. Mike saw him in spring training. I saw him when I covered a couple games for Sports Illustrated last week, and seeing him in person you know, kind of changes things a little bit, right? Like oh, it's for like, sure. it's like this mythos and you hear about it and you're like, yeah, it can't be as good as everybody says, but then you see him and it's better. So I guess, you know, your overall thoughts on his start, he, you know, he doesn't look overwhelmed at all. And then I guess just what you thought the first time you saw him in person. So thinking back when I first saw him, I can't remember if it was this spring training or last spring training. Whenever, whenever I first saw him, all, it's the same thing. I think every time. This dude's built like a mannequin. He's got these huge arms. He just looks perfectly fit. And it's like, you can see what scouts love about him. You can see what fans love about him. You can see what the White Sox love about him just by looking at him. He's someone that when you think of like, build your ideal ball player, that's what you're looking at. Someone who just looks like they breathe baseball. And that's what's so cool about him, just as a figure in general. Now, in terms of his start, the biggest thing for me was always going to be, how does he react against off-speed? It's the same thing that any young guy comes up with. Robert's an interesting case because he's never been someone 
who's big on taking his walks. And I think, you know, that's what a lot of detractors will say is he's not someone who walks a lot. But at the same time, you don't necessarily need to be the king of walks as much as you need to be the king of pitch, pitch selection. So that's why I'm saying if he's swinging at those balls out of the zone down and out, it, it, it alludes to someone who's going to take longer to develop at the major league level. And if he's pulling off uh, sliders on the outside corner, he's dribbling them over to shortstop. Like, that shows me someone who needs to develop further. What he's done really well, and really well maybe a bit generous, but what he's done better than I think I anticipated was staying on the ball and driving it the opposite way a lot more than I had really thought he was going to. I thought he was going to be someone who really struggled to get going with that. And I think one of the cool things is that he has gotten off to such a good start and he's had such good at-bats while doing it. Like, you still see him swing and fall off pitches on the outside part of the plate. Pitchers are going to do that all day to him, and he's still striking out a significant amount. But at the same time, when you look at guys who have come up, like Eloy and Moncada, and you've seen their at-bats and you're comparing them to Roberts, I think there's an argument to be made that, at least in this small sample size, Luis Robert has shown a little bit more maturity, which is something I would not have guessed when we had started talking about what his debut would look like. Yeah, and something we talked about, like you know, he has—I've said this a couple times now—but he, you know, he had a twenty-one percent swinging strike rate at Charlotte. So it's one of these things where it's kind of like, yeah, he was going to come up. I thought he was going to struggle a little bit more than this, and obviously, mm-hmm. it's only—it's only six games. I think I think he's the biggest takeaway so far, just as like you know he's. It's gold glove caliber defense and center. And he, and it's not even that he's like held his own. Like he's come up in big spots. Like the swing and miss is always going to be a part of the game. But like you said, I'm very surprised like how quickly he's made adjustments. And, And I don't even think that he's necessarily like opposed to walking. I just think that like his, his personal strike zone is bigger than we think that it should be. Right. Sure, so absolutely. he, so he, so he just kind of, you know, and he's going to K a lot, but you know what? He's, he's going to destroy mistakes. And when they start facing bad pitching consistently and getting into bad bullpens and stuff, he, he's just going to be even more dangerous in my opinion. It'll be nice to see the groove he gets. in. I mean, they've got Kansas city coming up and you just want to see him start to feel like he's in a groove. And I think he's even getting in that a little bit now. I mean, he has a hit in every game since he's started the season. Like, that's not a small thing to take away for a rookie. And you talk about his defense, too. It's game-changing out there. If if Eloy can stop running into walls, like, Eloy won't have to do much out in left field. It's It makes him a better ball player by having Luis Robert in center. I think that's one of the things that, when you talk about over, maybe not just the 60-game season, but over a course of 162 games, He's going to be a game-changing outfielder. And I think that's something that, you know, fans love to see him hit 30 bombs across the minor leagues last year. But at the same time, having that defense in center field is going to change games. And I think that's something that White Sox fans should really look forward to when you're talking about this guy. I think the bat always seems to be the first thing that everyone talks about. And I love to see that so early on his glove has already made an impact. There's so much that we could talk about uh, with Robert and the defense. I'm glad you you 
focus so much on the defense because they talked about it today on the broadcast, you know, and and you're right. It makes everybody better at the plate. It seems like, right. There was a recent stretch where he struck out in five of seven at bats, Mm -hmm. five of six at bats. And that we figured was going to happen. And we also recognize how aggressive he is early in the zone, but the value that he has at the plate right now, it seems like he is, he's balanced at least his, in his approach, he knows what he's looking for, and his hands are so quick that he's usually able to get the barrel on it. And we see it based on, you know, the exit velocity and all of his balls in play, um, essentially, that fell for a hit. So, yeah, I mean, we talk about Robert all day. I'd love to transition over, though, Jordan, to some some pitching, some White Sox pitching, because the bullpen, so intriguing. Um, Aaron Bummer lit it up. I mean, sh- showed up last season, earned the contract, and you could argue he's the best that they have currently uh, a White Sox draft pick. Ian Hamilton's up again. Uh, excited to see him. Cody Hoyer obviously is making noise. Another White Sox draft pick. We're seeing these guys that the White Sox have taken time in play a prominent role in, in 2020. So I'm, I'm, I'd love to get your thoughts on what they have in the young arms specifically. I think looking at the young arms is incredibly fascinating because I think there's a lot of White Sox fans and baseball fans in general who really don't understand how difficult it is to get a draft pick, not even just from the first rounds, but even your later rounds too, to be legitimate contributors at the major league level. And when it comes to some of the arms you're seeing come through, like you were saying, Aaron Bummer, Ian Hamilton, Cody Hoyer, like these are draft pick Zach Birdie's not far from being ready for this um when you see these guys coming up and making contributions on a team that is by all means expected to be competitive this year like that is an awesome accomplishment for the White Sox scouting department for the White Sox player development team I mean I think it's overlooked that these guys came through the system and are lined up to make significant contributions for this team. Jimmy Lambert's another name, even though he just got put on the DL or the IL with um, forearm strain. That's another name who looked great real quick to start this season. And I think they're all fascinating because there are a lot of live arms. Cody Hoyer, the ball jumps out of his arm, his arm. And they're fascinating because you can plug and play them wherever you, if you, Hoyer is someone right now, who could get high leverage outs. Bummer could be the closer of this team. Jimmy Lambert looked like he was going to make significant contributions late in games. Like that is exciting as a White Sox fan to not feel like you have to necessarily go out and sign the big name closer to a huge contract. That if you can find some arms from your system that make contributions to a playoff team, that that's an awesome win for the White Sox and everyone involved. And I think it's something that gets overlooked because maybe they're bullpen arms or what have you, but these are guys that are lined up to make legitimate contributions for this team. Yeah, Cody Hoyer is flying through the system and made his debut two years out of college, Wichita State arm. Uh, It's impressive. And I'd love to bring up Jimmy Lambert again because, uh, you know, we, we can only speculate at this point we got to keep an eye on 
how Jimmy Lambert mm-hmm. feels and, and what the White Sox report, because it's obviously concerning to hear that a guy 13 months out of Tommy John surgery is now suffering, you know, this, this pain because he worked hard. I mean, he was used, all, I mean, he would, he ramped it up like in summer and we saw him pitch in, in an exhibition game and, and twice in the big leagues. So now without Jimmy Lambert, it opens up multiple possibilities. Matt Foster gets called up and he's likely to make his debut at some point. You keep an eye on a guy like Dane Dunning as well. I legitimately think that between how, how unsure we are surrounding Ronaldo Lopez's situation, both injury-wise and long-term ability to be a starter, as well as even guys like even Carlos Rodon, or you know, we have Gio Gonzalez currently filling a spot, I'm very much ready to see if Dane Dunning can make a contribution at the next level. And that's an awesome thing to say because he hasn't pitched above double A. And it's fascinating that he can be someone kind of like Lambert, who his stuff is so good that you almost have to see if it plays at that major league level right away without ever hitting triple A. And I hope that in the coming weeks, as we get a, get, get a little bit more clarity on Lambert's long-term outlook for this season and Ronaldo's long-term outlook, that the White Sox don't necessarily settle on letting Gio Gonzalez fill the position. I, I hope that Dane Dunning comes up, and even if it's in a relief role to start, that he is lined up to at least be given a shot to start games this season. Because, I mean, you, you got to keep a couple things in mind, too. You know, you're trying to get the Sox to compete, but you're also trying to answer questions left with this team. Will Nick Madrigal be the second baseman long term? How long will it take for Luis Robert to really come into himself at the major league level? What's the rotation going to look like next year? Having Dunning and Lambert and all of these guy- type of guys get innings now is going to be huge and so impactful towards answering questions that need to be answered before you can say this team is ready to roll and ready to win this division. Jordan, shift and focus a little bit um, to the offense. And, you know, obviously, like here at Future Sox, like we don't have a minor league season right now. So th- this is kind of like the new normal for us. We're trying to, you know, figure out the best way to cover this team, like from a prospect standpoint. But, you know, if you've been following along with me, um, you know, there, there's some Twitter folk mad at me over my, my treatment of Jose Abreu and, <laughs> and obviously, you know, the, the batting order is, is something that, you know, over 162, like really isn't that big of a deal. Right. But I feel like in a 60 game season, I'm trying to figure out like how much to care about all these games. Right. So, you know, when Jose Abreu is like in the three spot every game and, you know, before today, Yasmani Grandal has played three times. You know, it's it's just like kind of annoying. So I guess what are your thoughts on, you know, some of the issues of the lineup so far? And then like what it what it should look like and how you think the smart teams would best deploy Jose Abreu right now. The, the smart the smart the teams. smart teams. <laughs> well if, I love that so, so like if, if if Jose Abreu were on the Rays or like the A's, how would they be using him? Yeah, I, trust me, I totally get what you were saying with that. It, it was just uh, funny how it came out. <laughs> good one, Jan. Um 
But when you look at Abreu, and I've been fairly silent on the topic because I didn't need people in my mentions any more than usual when I talk about my usual topics of Lucas Giolito and Carson Fulmer. But when you talk about Abreu, he's someone that because this team is so deep now, I, I don't think he necessarily needs to fill the same role that he has in previous years. So what does that look like? Maybe he's not getting the start every day against a right-hander. Maybe you're getting Zach Collins those at-bats, giving him that development time. Maybe you're finding some sort of platoon system where Grandal goes and plays first base and Collins can catch a little bit. I mean, even getting James McCann more at-bats would be nice. But Abreu hits lefties well, and I think he should stay in the lineup for left-handers. At the same time, if you start giving other guys at-bats against right-handers and they start to contribute, a la Zach Collins or whoever you might have come through there, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to seeing more strategic matchups in who's being put in the lineup for right-handers. I think left-handers is a little bit more straightforward because I think we all can acknowledge Abreu hits left-handers very well. But thinking about, you know, the smart teams and, you know, what Abreu would do, I, I don't think he would be batting third on a lot of teams right now. And I'm not willing to say he would be in the lineup every day against right-handers. In terms of my optimal lineup construction, I'm someone who I err on the side of give me the best nine first. My, my problem with Renneria's lineups hasn't necessarily been the order in which they're batting, but who's in the lineup? Like, I think we can all agree that I would have rather seen Adam Engel batting than Nicky Delmonico. Like, that was a huge issue for me. I get there's a certain mentality to hitting certain uh, positions in the lineup. Like, I wouldn't bat Moncada first because it changes his mentality of how he hits. We've seen that happen. But at the same time, I'd like to see, by the end of the season, Robert leading off, Moncada after him, I like Grandal in the three spot. I like Jimenez in the three spot. I think if you can go Grandal, Jimenez, and Carnacion in some fashion, three, four, five, and then Abreu probably hitting sixth. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Anderson. So maybe Anderson six, Abreu seven. You probably switch those two guys around, and then have Mazzara and Madrigal uh, clean it up. But I'd really like to see Robert at the top of the lineup. That's my biggest thing for moving forward with this team. Yeah, so I'm with you there, and I posted that. that you know, like I get that they're you know they're trying to hit Robert down at seven. They don't want to put too much pressure on him. But I think six games into this season, I don't I don't really think that he's overwhelmed at all. Um, you know, Tim Anderson has hit you know over the past couple of days. I don't think he's a leadoff hitter because I don't think he's going to walk enough. But that's for a different you know. A different day. But yeah, the, the Abreu thing, look, Jose Abreu is very, very useful. And, Absolutely. you know, he's even better against lefties than he used to be. I mean, I think he had like a 150 weighted runs created plus against left. Like you could hit him second against lefties. And like, I'm, I'm in like, that's fine. Oh yeah, no doubt. And, and they've only, you know, they've only faced six right-handed starters so far. And he's been in the lineup hitting third every day. I just, you know, I'm with you. I think Eloy Jimenez is probably the, the three hitter for the next seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. And and Jose Abreu doesn't have to be the Jose Abreu that he used to be. And if he's not going to walk anymore and he's going to prioritize 
hitting for power and driving in runs, then like, yeah, then the sixth spot is like perfect for him, I think. So, you know, I guess just some of this early optimization, if, if they pitch better, none of it probably matters. It, it probably is one of these things that's, that's overrated even, even over 60 games. But, you know, I, I just feel like your best player should be getting the most played appearances on the team. Right. And I mean, at a certain point, you know, you talk about protecting Robert, but at the same time, the guy needs to get at bats in order to develop and contribute and feel like he's getting into a groove. So if you're cutting off, let's just say, an at-bat a game from him by batting him seventh versus leading off, hitting towards the top line of whatever, at a certain point, those at-bats start to add up over the course of 60, over the course of 162, whatever have you. Once you start taking those at-bats away, now are you kind of negating any quote-unquote positive effect of protecting him by hitting him down in the lineup. Like you, you got to balance that at a certain point during the season. And it's probably a little bit more magnified because it's only 60 games we're talking about here. But at the same time, it's like you got to make sure you're striking that balance of I want to protect him, but I also need him to get the necessary amounts of at-bats so that I no longer feel like I have to protect him. I think a lot of it, what it comes down to, the way the White Sox evaluate their their young guys is they really feel better about starting major league players with a track record. Uh, Cody Hoyer is an exception, and typically relievers are because of the role they play mm-hmm. and how quickly you know they can make that jump. Uh, but but in the case of Lewis Robert, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what both of you are saying about the lineup construction, and this thing is going to remain fluid. I wonder how Mazar makes an impact on the lineup, you know, he can slot in essentially, but like really what it comes down to, and it's not Nicky Delmonico's fault. He's been in the news lately. Okay, it's no just, doubt. Yeah, I mean, he fits a profile. He's a left-handed hitter and Rick, or Rick Renteria is inserting him as if, okay, these matchups make sense. Delmonico can do some things from the left side with the bat. He's had good at bats. He's trying to justify it. He took too much into matchups. And I think if we want to talk about Rick Renteria real quick, I mean, this this does influence the way these prospects are being incorporated. I think he's done a really um, a pretty good job, actually, with the bullpen. And a lot of it is magnified because they're having success and it looks good on the decision-making from the manager. But, hey, credit to Renteria for you know pressing the right buttons here. But also, yeah, the line of construction, Jordan, that could influence you know negatively to the White Sox winning percentage overall. Right. I mean, you just got to be... Again, you got to be careful when you're talking about a team with expectations and now you're trying to play matchups versus just putting your best guys out there. Like, the Sox right now still have a depth problem. So it's hard to play matchups when your version of depth right now is Nicky Delmonico. It's easier for a team like the Dodgers to do it when your depth is. I don't know, pick your favorite middle infielder they seem to have stockpiles of. Like, that's the difference for teams is if you're going to get crafty with your lineup construction, you have to have the depth to be able to do it. And I don't think the Sox have that. And I think Ricky Renneria acts as if he has the depth to do that. And when you talk about, you know, whether it's the bullpen, I, I honestly think whether you look at the bullpen or whether you look at the depth in the lineup, it's two different worlds. I think this bullpen has a lot of depth for one of the first times ever. Not just because of who's here, 
but also who we know could come up from um, Schomburg anytime. Like we've already talked about Dunning, we just brought Foster up. It's like there, there are still capable arms waiting in the wings, and we already have a ton here. When you talk about the depth of the White Sox lineup, okay, you know Mazar will be back, you know um, Madrigal will be up eventually. But those are starters you're missing. That's not reinforcements. So your depth still becomes Nicky Delmonico, Leary Garcia, Danny Mendick, and Zach Collins. Like, that's not an incredibly deep team. So it's hard to play those matchup games if your team takes a significant step back by playing those matchups. Good teams won't have those issues because they have the depth to be able to plug and play really easily. So I think when you talk about, like you're saying, some of the negative things that can be done, acting like you have depth when you don't is a huge negative thing that you can do that can cost you ball games. We already said it probably multiple times already. Put the best players in the lineup. Absolutely. Give you the best chance to win. Don't overthink the matchups too much. Like I understand there's value in that, but hey man, when you're dealing with, you know, Nicky Delmonico as your four hitter, it's just a fun conversation, Jordan, that we could look back to. <laughs> oh. uh, and we'll we'll revisit this uh, because, you know, things I'm sure will change. But shifting a little bit here, I want to talk about Schaumburg and the alternate site and what the Sox have there. You talk about depth, love talking, pitching, and Jared Kelly, Matthew Thompson, and Garrett Crochet. They're all hanging out out there. How does that make you feel as a Sox fan? You know, it is so fun when you talk about some of these names you've gotten in the past couple drafts especially this most recent one where you're like, you got two consensus top 20-ish picks and you only picked once in the first round. Like, that's cool to know you have that in your back pocket sitting on the backfields in Schaumburg. Now, do I think Jared Kelly's ever going to see an inning of the season this year? Absolutely not. But at the same time, do I think there's a world in which the Sox are still contending and Garrett Crochet has been lighting up the backfields and... They need a lefty specialist out of the bullpen. I think you could make a legitimate argument for that. And that in itself is exciting because you've now drafted an arm that's so polished that he can make contributions right away. And if you have that sitting in your back pocket, now granted this is something that is completely dependent on how they perform out there in Schaumburg, their health and everything like that, but if you have something you can just pull out like that when your team's fighting for a couple spots or they're thinking about what's a playoff roster going to look like, like those are cool options to have. And when you talk about guys like Dahlquist and, and Thompson and Kelly, guys that are younger but represent that next wave too, getting them those innings against guys in Schaumburg, that's going to be cool for them. Because now you're getting direct work, and it's not on a huge team where you kind of feel lost at times, too. Jordan, real quick on Garrett Crochet. I think it's so interesting to think about the possibilities with him this year, right? Because 21 years old, and he pitched how many innings? Three innings uh, in his junior year of college. I mean, he got his body ready to pitch a college season, and it didn't happen. So I wonder how... You know, the White Sox have handled this situation, how they've like incorporated workouts, potentially any any of these like 
throwing programs. Obviously, you have to have a plan for this kid if you're going to ask him to be a part of your um, alternate site in your player pool. Um, it, it's just fun to think about because the transition from sophomore to junior put him as the 11th overall draft pick. Yeah, that's cool to know that, you know, without even pitching, like his draft spot and where he was on draft boards was because of how he pitched in fall league. And knowing that he was prepared to go out and possibly make himself a consensus top 10 pick, he was healthy assuming he was healthy, which I think we've all talked about. We've kind of figured out that he was. There was just a little injury scare. But he's ready to make contributions, and he's someone that, like you said, he's ready to make some sort of contribution to some sort of team this season because he got himself ready to pitch, and it just never happened. So it's cool to see, and it'll be interesting as more stories hopefully start to come out about how things look in Schaumburg. How a guy like Crochet looks. Like, it, it's insane to me that, you know, we started this by talking about how the Sox might have rushed Carson Fulmer. But now we're talking about, you know, what if Crochet could potentially do something this year? And I, I mean, that's scary, but also intriguing at the same time. Because this is such a completely different environment from even just five years ago. Yeah, so I mean, obviously with Garrett Crochet, I wouldn't bet on him pitching in the majors this year. But if you told me he did, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Oh no, if, no. if that if that makes any sense. Oh, I you totally know? agree. So I'm uh, I'm actually going to Schaumburg tomorrow, so I'll I'll report back and uh, I'll have some video and whatnot. So we'll see how that whole thing is going. But just as far as like their drafts in general, obviously they were very college heavy the last four to five years. Um, they don't like taking high school players in the first round. You know, high school pitchers are the riskiest demographic in the draft. Like, we've talked to a lot of people who have echoed those thoughts, but they've decided to take a little bit more risk, right, like, throughout. Like, last year they they added eight prep players. This year they, you know, they kind of, you know, punted the rest of their draft to land a guy as good as Jared Kelly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so you're getting that high upside, but you're taking on less risk because you're not doing it in the first round. So I guess the recent draft strategy where they've added, you know, some of these intriguing arms and then more high school players in general, what are you, what are your thoughts on that shift in, in philosophy? Yeah. I like the shift in philosophy so long as you feel comfortable with what's going to be happening at the major league level over the next couple of years. Cause I'm someone who, at least recently, when this team's rebuilding and you need to restock the uh, major leagues and even AAA, AA, you need to stock those higher levels as much as possible. I'm someone who appreciated their college-heavy first-round, especially, approach. Now, I know there was a ton of talk amongst Sox fans about young high school guys in the first round this year. And I think, depending on how this year goes, if the, if the Sox really feel comfortable with what's going on at the major league level and what 2021, 2022 are going to look like, even 2023 for that matter, now's the time to start taking those risks because now you feel comfortable with what you have. And now you need to start building for that next wave. And you're hoping that next wave is these young high school guys who are a little bit more risky, but at the same time have so much potential that you're almost 
like, how can I pass this up? I don't need something right away at the major league level. How can I pass up taking what I see as so much upside, even if it carries that much more risk? So I think that the shift in draft strategy to high upside guys from high school in the second and third rounds, especially these past two years, I really like that. And I think that there's definitely a legitimate argument to be made that if things are going well, and it looks like for the most part they have been at the major league level, that you can now shift that strategy even further away from what's the typical White Sox one and feel comfortable taking a first-round high school prep player based on how the draft board falls, of course, um, heading into next year. Now, it's almost I'm almost a little concerned. It'll just depend on how many innings high school pitchers get that people can watch, how many at-bats high school batters can get, because this is an unsure environment. We don't know what we're getting yet. But there is definitely a legitimate argument to be made that next year the White Sox should be targeting high school guys in the first round. Yeah, so I totally agree. Like, I think, you know, they're at a stage where, you know, it kind of looks like they they have their core on the offensive side. So I I was very much against them just, like, taking the next best college hitter at 11 this year. For sure. Because I just kind of feel like you're, you know, you're, and nothing's for sure, right? But I feel like your spots are kind of set in stone there. So either take pitching or take a prep guy. Because like you've said, like, you know, they've made a lot of changes on the development side, but they are going to need pieces to trade. And that's why I would start infusing the system with younger players. Mm-hmm. Because, as, you know, as they're going to be contending here, you would think that they would, you know, possibly look to trade some guys away. But, you know, sh- shifting away from some of that, you know, there there is... You know, there was some concern that the White Sox did not, you know, start the season with all of their best players. Today, today was, uh, you know, uh, service time manipulation day. So we should see service time manipulation day, guys. (laughs) So, so we should see Nick Madrigal at some point. Um, What are what are your thoughts on you know the the decision that they made, whether or not you know how much of it is service time related, and how soon do you think we see him here? Yeah, so this conversation would have been so much different if we were having it back in March. Because back in March, and now, we knew either way Nick Madrigal wasn't starting with this team. Because teams, it's a business. And especially now, if you can give up six games worth of Nick Madrigal and get 162 years from now, I mean, look at the Cardinals doing it with Dylan Carlson. Look at the Dodgers even doing it with Gavin Lux. Like teams are gonna do it. It's a business. 162 is greater than six. Like that's just gonna happen. Now, in terms of how ready Madrigal was, I think, you know, back in March, and we're talking about spring training and how he looked. I think there was a legitimate argument to say Nick Madrigal was not ready to be a major league ball player. And I think that even though it would have made Sox fans pretty unhappy if on March 26th he wasn't with the ball club, that at least there was some sort of rationale behind it. That even if it was all service time manipulation, you could reasonably say that I kind of buy what they're saying about needing more development. You couldn't do that with someone like Luis Robert. You could barely do it with Eloy Jimenez. Thankfully, those guys... Um, 
signed their big long-term contracts, and you didn't have to worry about those conversations. But now, it, it's hard to say that sending Nick Madrigal down was, quote-unquote, the right thing for the Sox to do in July, because now he's not getting at-bats against anybody except his own ball club. So it's like, how much did that really help the conversation? And it's and that's why the conversation looks so much different now than it did back in March. Because in March, he could have gotten a couple of weeks, even a month of at-bats against minor league guys. Now, he's not getting at-bats against anybody. I think they'll probably bring him up uh, maybe to start the next homestand. I think they're home after Kansas City. So maybe they bring him up after that. I, I think it would be pretty obvious, truthfully, for them to bring him up let's say tomorrow or to start the series on Friday in Kansas city. But I, I think we will see him sooner than later. And, and I hope, I hope he adjusts well. I, I hope it's not something where, you know, kind of what we saw in summer camp or saw in spring training. Like he, he really didn't look all that ready with the bat with the glove. I mean, we've all talked about, it. I would have loved to have him opening weekend. Nick Madrigal is a very interesting conversation for me because it was so much harder to justify sending him down this time around than I think it would have been to justify it back in March. Yeah. And I, you know, I think Mike's going to take the next one here, but like you were saying, like bringing him up tomorrow or bringing him up Friday, how bad it looks. The Blue Jays guys have absolutely no shame at all. Oh yeah. You know, because they, they started Nate Pearson tonight on service time manipulation day so and they said too i think it was a couple weeks maybe it was just a week ago or something they said we're planning to start him on this day yeah it's it's absolutely absurd. like that was an egregious form of service time manipulation i would hope the Sox avoid that and the way rickon talks he does his best to avoid it so i i, I would expect their actions on nick madrigal to kind of follow how they've talked about the situation I agree with with what you said about, you know, I could probably buy what the White Sox are selling if they told me there are these reasons, this, this, and that, pointing exactly the, you know, this type of stuff they're looking at in in Magical's development and say, okay, all right, that's fine. Uh, I I get it. But also, if you keep them down for six games, five games, right, you gain an extra year of control. I mean, it's in the CBA. Like, good luck. Good luck fighting that battle. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, I mean, the White Sox fans, I can understand the frustration when it comes down to it because I think the incorporation of Nick Madrigal every day moves this organization forward. They take the next step forward. No doubt. I don't want to bash on Leary Garcia, Adam Engel, Nicky Delmonico, but you're like looking forward to seeing those guys out of the lineup because then – these prospects we've been following for years are finally making a contribution. Nick Madrigal falls into that category, but when you have these variables in play, this is the type of stuff we get. Fans upset that he's not there, but because of the business side, you know, you're able to say, hey, we're going to be good in the long run. Look at all the guys that we have under control that we expect to be a part of the core. And it really started with Tim Anderson and Jordan. So much insightful conversation tonight um i'd love to keep going with you as we you know focus on and we talked a little bit about the lineup earlier and and i mentioned tim anderson just now because that's where i guess for me started i i I just uh i'm thinking about how 
the the progression of this rebuild, the patience that the White Sox internally maintain with a lot of these guys, it applies to so many of these players within that conversation. But they're starting to all take shape, and uh, it, it's really exciting to follow. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, no rebuild is without its bumps, right? Like, I mean, Moncada coming up, th- there was nothing worse than that. Maybe Giolito, but, I mean, the outrage over Moncada's first full year in this league. I mean, if you would have asked fans after that how they felt about the rebuild... I don't think you'd get the same reactions you would today. And I don't think there's anyone who inspired that sort of, you know, fear in whether or not this is going to work than Yohan Moncada did. And I think that that's a natural reaction for fans to take, but also one that, you know, you, you're glad that as an organization that decided to take this under, that is historically a team that tries to make win-now moves, whether or not they work out is a different thing. But to have that patience and to really commit to rebuilding and to the guys they have deemed the next wave of White Sox stars, like it, it makes all of the not-so-fun writing we've all had to do over the time, and maybe it's been more fun for you guys because the minors have been far more exciting than the majors, but it, it makes all of that, you know, as a fan, it, it almost makes it feel worth it to you that I stuck through this and, you know, granted this team doesn't necessarily owe me anything, but I feel like they lived up to their word with what they're putting on the field now. I mean, from your perspective, from your writing perspective, like you spent three, four years of just coverage after coverage, and it's got to be cool to see all these guys you wrote about and covered on site to be making the contributions at the major league level. So it's cool on so many different forms. And you talked about it, like, good on the Sox for really committing to this and committing to their guys and believing in them. Even if it's something you you can argue they had to do because Moncada was supposed to be the guy. But being able to stick with it and commit to it is something that, as a fan, you really appreciate as you see the final product here. Or what's close to a final product. Not necessarily the final product, but... Yeah, we, we hear you, and we really appreciate those those kind words. There's so many uh, of us and, and those before me in my time with Future Sox who have built this credibility, uh, and, and you know they work hard, and it's really a team effort at the site. So it's it's cool, uh, and I appreciate that. But you know, we talk about all these prospects. Is there one that stands out to you aside from Luis Robert that you you're just so intrigued by, or you can't get enough of? It could be anyone. So this one, so it's not an out-of-the-box name. I, there were two names I was really impressed by in spring training this year. Cody Hoyer, which who's someone we've already talked about, and someone I think a lot of Sox fans are really intrigued by, and that's Andrew Vaughn. I went to spring training this year just not really knowing what I was going to get out of Vaughn. I was a little worried. I'm like, does the bat play? um as a wood bat versus the college metal bats like does that all play does he translate well how does that all work and then reports came out that he was probably going to start the year in double a and i was like is he ready for that and then i watched the caliber of his at bats both 
live in spring training and on the air in summer camp, I was incredibly impressed by the maturity of him. And he's someone that when you talk about what a final finished product looks like, he went from someone that for me, I was like, I can pencil him in. I'm not 100% sure about it, but I could pencil him in at first base long term and feel okay about it. To someone that I was so impressed by, I'm like, I'm willing to write him in starting next year. And that's what makes prospects so cool is that once you get to see them and you see their process and you see their maturity and their growth, that's someone who, sure, he seemed to be the consensus when we drafted him and what the White Sox have done to get him those at-bats last year um, during the minor league season. I I would have never sat here and guessed that I would be answering this question as Andrew Vaughn. Unless I had seen him play both in spring training at summer camp. And it's just his process, his at-bats. It's someone that resembles a major league hitter. Granted, there's flaws still, he's young. But it's someone whose process is just so cool and so intriguing that I'm excited to see what he can do for the White Sox moving forward. And I would not have answered this question this way if we had this conversation a year ago, honestly. Yeah, so I'm with you on Andrew Vaughn. I mean, when you, you know, you're a top 25, top 30 prospect in baseball, like at first base, you know, you're pretty good. So oh, absolutely. It, it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, what happens. I, you know, I'm with you. Like, I kind of thought, you know, after some some service time games, potentially Andrew Vaughn's, their primary first baseman in 2021. Now, you know, will they make that move now after hanging out in Schaumburg, you know, without some sort of like August fall league? I I don't know. You know, that's a question going forward. Like as far as how much of the development do you want to jump? So, so I think that's like an interesting off season storyline because I do think like looking at this long-term core, like he's, he's part of it, I think, but, you know, I, I don't I don't know what's really going to be the best move, you know, for the organization with him going forward because of kind of what's happened so far. And I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? Like, it, it's good that we can sit here and say there's potential for him to be in the lineup next year. But at the same time, how does that hurt his development? Vaughn is probably going to be the best hitter on the White Sox, period. Once he's up. He's just going to be the best hitter that they have in their lineup day in and day out. Like you said, his approach and he's got power to all fields. This guy's all over it. He doesn't, his strikeout rate, you know, it's impressive for a guy in his profile. I'm excited about Andrew Vaughn. I'm with you. I mean, I, and you saying that about him being the best hitter in a lineup, like, like I said, like a year ago, I would have been like, eh, I can maybe see it, but not really. But once you, I'm serious. If you go back and watch tape of spring training, if that's available or tape of summer camp, if that's available as Sox fans, just go back and watch his process and how he approaches an at bat. It's majorly ready in his process. Even if there are still flaws in his swing or flaws in how teams can still pitch around him. Absolutely. Uh, what it, it was a pleasure, man. Great conversation. 
really appreciate the time joining us here in the Future Sox podcast. I know we're going to talk soon, so uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much for joining us again, taking the time, man. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate it. Like I said, thanks for having me on. It was cool to do this. It's cool to talk to people outside of the Sox on 35th uh, podcast. And you guys continue to provide such great coverage, such Sox media leadership coverage. And like I said, when we started this all, we look to the people who have done it before us and how we operate and how we look to promote things and run things. And, you know, it's a more difficult year for you guys because a lot more of the excitement is at the major league level. But based on the work you've done and the work I know you guys will continue to do, like, it's impressive the amount of work that you guys have put in and the coverage you continue to provide. No matter who's doing it, who you're running out to different games, or who's writing the articles, who's on staff, the work you provide is incredible. And like I said, something that people look to to, admi- to admire and to work off of and to really learn from. I think that's something you, that's really all you can ask for at the end of the day. That you just provide coverage that, you know, people look to and people trust. I think you guys have absolutely mastered that. So again, appreciate all you guys do and appreciate you guys having me on. Right on. Thanks, Jordan. Let's do it again, man. Absolutely. We'll have to have you guys on Sox on 35th at some point. Thank you. Yeah, uh, whatever you need. That is Jordan Lazowski, editor-in-chief for Sox on 35th and Diamond Digest. Follow him on Twitter at jlazowski14. Looking forward to the next time we have a conversation. White Sox, we'll see what happens.